Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up today, we're discussing what's been happening at the BMA's annual representative meeting this week. We'll be talking about the GMC reversing a decision to suspend GP Dr Manjula Aurora for one month after she said she was promised a laptop by her employers. And we'll be looking at the Royal College of GP's new campaign that sets out the steps the college thinks are needed to address the workload and workforce crisis in general practice, as well as the college's plan for embedding relationship-based care into GP practices. Finally, we have some good news on a community transport service for GP practices in West London. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. It's been a really busy week for us at GP Online this week. We've had the BMA Annual Representative Meeting, or ARM, at the start of the week. And we're recording this just before we head to the RCGP's annual conference in the second half of the week. By the time you listen to this, we'll be on our final day of the RCGP conference and you can read all the news from that event on our website at gponline.com. So first up, we're going to talk about a couple of things that happened at the ARM. Nick, there were a couple of primary care motions up for debate, which we mentioned on the news podcast last time. The first of these related to primary care networks and was effectively calling for the BMA to negotiate the end of PCNs with funding moved into the core contract. What exactly was that motion and what happened with it? We mentioned on the last episode of the podcast that the BMA was heading for a showdown on PCNs at the annual representative meeting, the ARM. And this week that has really come to a head. Doctors at the ARM voted for the BMA to organise the withdrawal of GP practices from the PCN days by 2023. So obviously at the moment, the vast majority of GP practices in England are part of PCNs or primary care networks. And a huge proportion of the new funding that came with the five-year GP contract that began in 2019 is channeled through PCNs. So doctors at the ARM also voted for that PCN funding to be moved into core GP contract funding to support practices. This is obviously at a time when the profession is managing unprecedented workload with, as we've discussed often, a shrinking GP workforce. The motion at the conference, it also reiterates a warning from LMCs that primary care networks are an existential threat to GP's independent contractor status. And it also contains a section that tells the BMA to organise industrial action, if necessary, to push back against NHS England's decision to impose a GP contract package for the current financial year. So there's a lot to digest there. But to put it in context, we're days away from a major NHS reform that will see 42 integrated care systems across England take over from CCGs. And PCNs are a key part of the vision for how those integrated care systems are going to operate at a more local level. The the recent report commissioned by the government from Dr. Claire Fuller, who's a GP and is, is going to be chief executive of one of those integrated care systems, talked about PCNs evolving into what she calls neighbourhood teams. And these would be the geographical basis for aligning different strands of the health and care workforce with a whole load of back office support built around them. But although for some GPs, PCNs have brought some welcome support where, you know, for example, they've been able to bring in staff through the additional roles reimbursement scheme in a helpful way. Many GPs feel that networks have simply become another vehicle for dumping additional workload onto general practice at a time where it's already massively overstretched. 
And it seems that the, the imposition of a GP contract for this year, including, as we've said, extra work through PCNs, confirmed for many GPs that the government and the NHS leaders were just not interested in listening to them. And that sense of disillusionment has led us to this point. And I think, finally, it's also worth noting at this point that there's also a real sense of division between the leaders of the BMA GP committee and the wider leadership of general practice, and therefore perhaps with the grassroots of the profession. And at the ARM, the GP committee's leaders asked the conference not to vote for withdrawal from PCMs, and they were ignored. Um, and we know from the Oman Bala report earlier this year that um, satisfaction with the GP committee for England among the profession is low. And the way this vote has played out just seems to underline that once again. Yeah, I mean, one of the other interesting motions that I covered was about pay restoration, um, which got a bit of pickup in the national media as well. So that motion called for the BMA to achieve pay restoration to 2007 values for its members within the next five years. And that passed overwhelmingly. Um, And proposing the motion, Dr Emma Brunswick, who is a junior doctor and also a member of the BMA UK Council, said that in real terms, junior doctors pay is down around 25% since 2008. SAS doctors, it's about 15%. GPs over a quarter and consultants over 30%. She went on to say that the rising cost of living was outpacing current pay deals and predicted pay awards by 8% or more this year. And that basically is the equivalent of a whole month of pay. So what she was saying is doctors are effectively being asked to work for a whole month free this year compared with last year. So she and a number of the other speakers acknowledged that perhaps the only way to achieve pay restoration was through pretty strident action and industrial action, like you mentioned there. And in fact, the BMA is set to ballot junior doctors, which obviously includes GP trainees on possible industrial action early next year. I think, you know, the thing to bear in mind with this, GP pay, as we know, is covered by the current five-year contract deal that's set to run until 2024. And that has agreed funding uplifts in it each year, which obviously come nowhere close to the level inflation is currently running at. Um, You know, one GP got up at the ARM and explained how inflation and the contract imposition, which you were talking about this year, has affected practices. He says that, um, as we've discussed before, there's nothing extra in the contract this year to take account of the impact of COVID and the backlog of care. Practices were basically handed uh, a pay increase that was agreed back in 2019 before the pandemic and before inflation went into overdrive. And obviously, it's important to remember that for GPs, pay rises are covered by the overall money given to practices under the GP contract, which has to pay for all staff pay rises, including salaried GPs. And any increase also has to cover other expenses, um, other practice costs. And as this GP at the ARM highlighted, practice expenses have basically eaten up all the rise in income that practices have been given this year because of rising inflation. And so as such, a lot of GP partners will potentially be facing earning less money this year, like less money overall, not even in real terms than they did last year, despite on paper having received an uplift. So it was quite a strident conversation, really. There were lots of doctors talking about struggling to get by on what they earned. And, you know, these weren't just younger doctors either. These were more experienced people. I think it's pretty impossible to argue that a doctor is worth 30 percent or in GP's cases, 25 percent less than they were in 2008. You know, I think what was interesting about it was how strident people were getting. You know, lots of people were saying that the motion didn't go far enough. They needed to address this within the next 12 months rather than within five years. And I got the impression that the doctors in the room were prepared to really fight on this. And I think we will increasingly see more talk of industrial action 
over the coming months. And this kind of links back to what you were saying, Nick, because what they were talking about was that different branches of practice and different countries may decide to take different approaches on how they achieve pay restorations. But as you've mentioned, we know that GPs already voted that they were prepared to take industrial action in an indicative ballot last year. And also, as you've mentioned, many GPs are really unhappy that there's been no progress from the BMA GP committee on pushing forwards with a formal ballot. So obviously, it remains to be seen what all this will mean for GPs. But I think this motion on pay, coupled with what you were talking about, about PCNs, means I think we might need to see a real change in approach from the GP committee about how they're approaching contract negotiations. Yeah, I mean, I think it does show that there's a lot of discontent coming to a head across a lot of branches of practice. I mean, I think one thing that's just worth adding, you know, onto this um, discussion about the pay restoration motion that was passed, the day after the front pages of of some of the national media were talking about doctors demanding a 30% pay rise. And as someone put very well at the conference the following day, having read those front pages, This is absolutely not about doctors asking for a 30% pay rise. It's asking for them to have pay rises they've not been awarded or, you know, sub-inflationary pay rises over a number of years put right. And that's something that, that is perhaps particularly important now that we've got inflation running at close to double figures. Yeah, exactly. One of the other things that came up around the ARM was an update from the BMA about steps it has taken following the Romney review, which was set up after you exclusively reported on widespread sexism within the BMA's GP committee back in 2019. What's been happening with that? Yeah, so a report was shared with me this week. It's a, it's a BMA report, as far as I understand it, not yet made public, but shared internally about progress on implementing recommendations from the Romney review. And, and to recap, um, you know, as you said, but we reported in April 2019 on women within the BMA GP committee speaking out about their experiences of sexism, harassment, bullying while working in BMA roles. And that led to the BMA commissioning a QC, Daphne Romney, to investigate. And in October that year, October 2019, she published the Romney Review, which confirmed a lot of the concerns that our reporting raised and set out 31 recommendations for the BMA to, to sort itself out, basically. And the report this week called Improving Culture and Inclusion at the BMA shows that according to an assessment by the association's internal auditors, only 55% of recommendations from the Romney Review have been fully implemented. The report's foreword admits that there remains a a long way to go on tackling sexism. And given that we've reported in recent months on poor experiences continuing for women in LMCs and in committees at a national level, that's perhaps not surprising. But a senior GP I spoke to, a woman who's a long-standing GP committee member and a former BMA council member, said the report was disappointing because it just doesn't give the level of detail she'd hoped for in terms of specifying what has and hasn't been done in terms of acting on Romney recommendations. So you, you know, you've got a number of things that have been done, but not, not specifics on which ones it is that have been acted on and which ones it is that, that haven't been acted on. Uh, And the report also makes clear that the GP committee has not implemented a key recommendation from the Romney report around having multi-member constituencies. It it does talk about changes that have been made in some areas around use of BMA list servers, which are a sort of communication channel for members, 
uh, and around remediation and so on. But overall, even though there's some evidence of representation of women on BMA committees beginning to rise, for example, the GP I spoke to said that this report as an update was a, a missed opportunity. And I think it's fair to say that some other GPs might have stronger words than that to uh, to describe it. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing that more progress hasn't been made. I remember Chan Nagpal, the chair of the BMA, Dr Chan Nagpal, uh, mentioned in his speech at the start of the BMA's ARM that there was still a long way to go when it came to tackling sexism and representation of women. And he did cite the example that uh, there wasn't any women who put themselves forward to be the next chair of the association when he stands down um, in the coming months, which he f- said he personally found quite disappointing. And obviously it is really disappointing that no women felt they could put themselves forward to that role or no woman wanted to put herself forward for that role. Um, obviously, it's one of the, the big jobs in medicine that has not been held by a woman. Stepping away from the BMA conference, one of the other big stories this week was the news that the GMC has admitted a medical tribunal was wrong to suspend Manchester GP Dr Manjula Aurora for a month over claiming she was promised a laptop from her employer. The GMC has said it will not contest her appeal against the suspension. Nick, this case has caused absolute outrage amongst the medical profession, I think it's fair to say, and has been highlighted as a real example about everything that is problematic with the GMC. What exactly happened to lead to Dr Aurora's suspension? Yeah, so, so this is it's quite a strange case on the face of it, and one that, um, as you say, has caused outrage in the medical profession. Dr. Manjula Aurora is a GP in Manchester, and she was suspended for a month by a medical tribunal because it found that she had acted dishonestly by claiming that she'd been promised a laptop. The transcript from the tribunal shows that it heard evidence that Dr. Aurora had asked for a laptop And the medical director at the organisation where she worked had emailed back to say that no laptops were currently available, but, open quotes, I will note your interest when the next rollout happens. And Dr. Aurora subsequently told an IT department colleague that she'd been told she could have a laptop next time it's available, and she said that she'd been promised one. And based on that, the medical tribunal decided that a suspension was in order and that Dr. Aurora had not only been dishonest, but that her actions amounted to misconduct, which was serious. Um, And it came to this conclusion, despite acknowledging that her dishonesty was confined to the use of a single word on a single occasion and that she was a a person of, of good character. So far, so weird. And given all of this, you know, it perhaps shouldn't be a massive surprise that the GMC this week said it had effectively agreed to overturn that decision and that suspension would be removed from Dr. Aurora's record. But the case has served to deepen concerns over the state of the GMC fitness to practice referral process and its fairness and proportionality. We know already that doctors from minority ethnic backgrounds are significantly more likely to face referrals to the GMC, and this case reinforces that sense of bias. The Doctors Association UK said this week that the case had shown doctors that their regulatory body does not think twice before unjustly suspending them, uh, and the BMA has repeated its calls for a root and branch review of the GMC referral process. That's something that would go far beyond what the GMC has already set in motion, which is a review by its BMA committee chair, and uh, a QC who are going to look at this case in particular to evaluate how it came to be referred to a tribunal in the first place and what happened after that. 
yeah, interestingly, I was watching a motion at the ARM. We've come back round to the, the ARM again um, about the GMC, which was calling for basically a massive overhaul of the way the GMC works. There was real strength of feeling against the GMC in that debate, I think it's fair to say, which called for the regulator to only investigate serious issues and to operate in a much more timely manner when investigating doctors than is currently the case. I mean, you'd think that would go without saying, wouldn't you, to be fair? They only <laughs> investigate things that, that actually matter. I mean, I don't know, but anyway, here we are. No, exactly. <laughs> But, um, you know, the, the Dr. Aurora's case was mentioned by one of the delegates as an example of why the whole system's not working properly. And like you mentioned, uh, the racial bias that is present in that system. It's obviously an issue that outgoing BMA chair Dr. Chan Nagpal feels really strongly about as well. He told the conference the whole GMC referral pathway needed to change. He said the system was weighted against doctors and said it was, quote, an adversarial prosecutorial approach that is actually based around a triumph of winning a case without any consideration of the human elements or actually trying to discover the truth, unquote. So that's a pretty strong statement there. He actually said the whole system needed to be overhauled and he thought that that really needed a change to the medical act itself rather than just the GMC changing itself. As I mentioned earlier, we're recording this just before we head off to the RCGP annual conference. Last week, the college launched a new campaign aimed at tackling the current crisis in general practice. Its report, Fit for the Future, a new plan for GPs and their patients, sets out measures on areas including workforce, funding, bureaucracy and infrastructure that it believes will help put general practice back on track. Nick, as part of the campaign launch, the college released some fairly bleak statistics from a survey that it had conducted among nearly 1,300 GPs and GP trainees to highlight the extent of the challenge the four UK governments are facing. What did the survey actually have to say? The main survey finding is that around 19,000 GPs could quit the NHS in the next five years. That's a that's an extrapolation from a finding that 42% of respondents to the RCGP poll uh, said they were likely to quit in the next five years. I mean, this is all obviously bound up with a lack of job satisfaction and low morale. Um, the survey found that two thirds of respondents felt they lacked the time to properly assess their patients. Uh, 65%, so two thirds again, roughly said uh, patient safety is being compromised due to appointments being too short. There's also real pessimism over the prospects of the situation improving anytime soon. Four in five respondents told the RCGP they expect working general practice to get worse over the next few years, and only 6% expected uh, things to improve. Uh, That reflects probably the the sense that the additional GPs that the government's promised repeatedly are not coming. And then on top of that, the fact that there's an NHS waiting list of six and a half million people which is is not going anywhere anytime soon and which I think the government has admitted is going to get bigger before it begins to be reduced. And we know how that sort of massive backlog of, of patients waiting for hospital treatment is contributing all the time to um, to, to general practice workload day to day. And then so the, the final point was around um, you know, premises and infrastructure. Two in five respondents saying GP practice premises are not fit for purpose and lots saying IT infrastructure isn't good enough either. So those are those are the key findings from the um, from the survey, which, as you said, are pretty pretty bleak. There is a sort of positive out of it, is because the college are putting forward um, solutions that it thinks could address the problems if the governments are the UK governments talking about four separate UK governments, obviously, are prepared to take action. So it's worth highlighting some of the things that they're calling for, which um, they think will make a difference. Um, if you listened to last week's podcast when I spoke to RCGP Chair Professor Martin Marshall, you'll recognise some of the things in the college's report are very similar to some of the issues he spoke to me about. 
So this latest document builds on what the college was suggesting should happen back in 2019 to address many of the challenges that GPs and their teams are facing. The recommendations broadly come under the themes of funding, workforce, IT and premises. The college is saying that 11% of the NHS budget should come to primary care, which it says would allow for £150 million to be allocated to a GP retention and careers development programme would also enable extra funding of £100 million annually to go to primary care networks to support management and clinical directors and help practices to work better at scale. And it also wants to see a comprehensive review of the GP funding formula so it properly accounts for deprivation and also a billion pounds to be sent into primary care for premises development. The RCGP also wants guarantees on workforce numbers that go above and beyond the 6,000 GPs, which we've been waiting years for, and as Nick mentioned, are not coming at the minute, and also above and beyond the 26,000 additional staff um, under the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme. The college is calling for GP training places to expand by 10% year on year, and the ARRS to be more flexible so that people can recruit a number of other roles, including nurses, which aren't currently covered by that scheme. They're also calling for a review of contractual issues, including a move away from the COF and tackling unnecessary bureaucracy. And also they talk about improvement in IT systems that will help to support continuity of care and also deliver a better booking system for patients. Um, you know, off the back of this, also the college this week has published a further report that's being unveiled at its conference looking at how practices can embed relationship-based care or continuity of care, as some people would call it, in the way that they work and what needs to happen at a national level to achieve this. So this is two quite major reports coming out from the college in the space of a week or so. That second report is actually a really interesting read and we'll put a link to that in the description for this episode. We'll put a link to both of them. And the report on relationship-based care again talks about scrapping the quaff. In this report, it specifically sort of says that, that they should move that funding into incentives for practices to deliver continuity of care. You know, and it again mentions the importance of IT to achieve it. It also talks about embedding relationship-based care into undergraduate training and about making it a national priority in primary care, which would involve local NHS bodies funding programmes locally to help support continuity, as well as paying for change management programmes that would support practices to embed relationship-based care in their booking systems and their triage systems. As I mentioned, that report's going to be properly launched at the college's conference and you'll be able to find coverage of that and of RCGP Chair Professor Martin Marshall's speech, which sets out the college's vision for relationship-based care on our website at gponline.com. I mean, I guess it's fingers crossed for some kind of uh, shift towards relationship-based government because if, uh, at the moment the uh, you know background of imposed contracts and health secretaries penning four words to things that say that we're going to get rid of the GMS contract and make GP salary and all the rest of it without any form of sort of consultation of the profession as a whole doesn't suggest that that relationship is there in any shape or form at the moment. Well, also, I also think that the relationship between NHS England and the BMA could be in a bit of a struggle with them demanding, you know, more pay and also not wanting to back primary care networks, which is obviously one of the things that NHS England is pinning its its hopes on integrating care over the next few years. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So we've just got time for a bit of good news, which this week is about a charity in Ealing in West London called Ealing Community Transport that's working with North West London CCG to provide free assisted transport to GP appointments at practices in the area. The service helps patients that can't get safely to the GP practice on their own. 
It's a simple system that's free for practices and allows the GP at the practice to book the bus so it's reserved for those most in need. It's been shown to reduce the rates of missed appointments, reduce the amount of home visits and benefit the loneliest and most isolated older people in the community. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Nick. We're back next week when I'm talking to Joe Wadey and Nicola Davis from the Institute for General Practice Management about the important role practice managers play, the challenges they're facing and steps the Institute is taking to help address these. Do join me then. But in the meantime, you can find all the news related to primary care and a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 